For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Lawrence Gregory entitled, The Glorious Church of God. Mr. Gregory. Today is December 24th. I'm not going to talk about Christmas, the birth of Jesus, the coming new year, according to men's calendars, that is, or any of those accompanying doctrines. We've covered those before. We've talked about them before. Instead, today, I want to cover the glorious Church of God. And I want to open in Matthew, the 16th chapter, and verse 18, just one verse here. Jesus said, I say also unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I want to say two things here. Number one, this is the church of Jesus. It's not a church of men, even though sometimes men put their name on the churches and the churches are known by that man's name. But uh, also the second thing is that uh, Jesus said this church would continue forever. And I know there's been opposition down through the ages and it seems like the church is very weak and uh, uh, almost has disappeared from sight, but still it's there. Jesus said that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, that it would always be and always exist. So those two things we can remember today, nothing else. Now, uh, there's another thing in the Old Testament. Back when Moses was uh, talking with God a number of times and uh, he was uh, discussing about uh, going into the Holy Land and the temple or the tabernacle was set up and established and uh, Moses was wanting uh, God to uh, reveal himself to him a little more plainly. And uh, he said uh, in verse 18, uh, Moses said, I beseech you, show me thy glory. And God and he said, that is God, I will make all my goodness pass before you. We'll leave it right there. One thing we can know from this is in God's glory is his goodness. Now, this one who was the speaker with Moses, we know was the one who became the son, Jesus Christ, because he came to reveal the father was in the background. And uh, one thing we can know throughout uh, the history of the scriptures, that God is good, that Jesus is good. And therefore, we in the church of God are to be good also. Now, Let's, let's go on here back to the New Testament. I know there are uh, quite a few uh, verses, uh, quite a few scripture references, but we're only going to be looking at a few today. And um, we want to go to Ephesians, 
the uh, fifth chapter. And verse 25 and 27. Now I'm breaking into some thoughts here, so please excuse me. I'm not going to read all the surrounding scripture references here. But uh, in verse 25, it says, um, uh, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish and uh, now notice here Jesus said that he purchased his church and he wanted it to be glorious as he is glorious in Colossians 1.24 And verse 27, verse 24, Colossians 1. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind, and the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. And verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, from this we see, and we have uh, many other scriptures that show that the body of Jesus is the church. He said, I will build my church. And so we, we know the body has many members, and we have this in scriptures, analogies of the body and different members, and we in particular. But another thing here is that he said that this is a mystery. This is hard for people to understand. And uh, I want to talk here just a minute about, even though this is not the subject of this, but the hope that's in us. We have a hope that we will be like Christ. I don't know. I, I keep hearing that humming uh, background. Do you hear it? Okay, I don't know what it is, uh, whether it's uh, the microphone or I'll try this just a little bit. Maybe, Brian, you can turn one of these mics off. Seems like I'm getting a, a reverberation here. Now, that's better. I can, I can hear it better. I can not hear it now, if, that's, if that makes sense. Uh, were you hearing it? Yes, okay. Now, we're not hearing it now, right? right? So, I don't know which mic is on. Which one is on, Brian? Both of them? Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, we saw the humming. I don't know which mic. But uh, anyway, uh, okay, and let's go back to Philippians. Uh, and uh, I want to look in verse 21 of chapter 3. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is even able even to sub, 
subdue all things unto himself. Excuse me for misreading a little bit of that. So the church is like his glorious body. And I want to look at one more scripture here concerning this in Ephesians, the first chapter. And verse 22 And 23. And has put all things under his feet. And gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. So now. uh, What I want us to remember and get from this is that the church of God is the body of Christ. It is the body of Jesus. And he is good. So therefore, if the church is to be the body of Jesus, then the church and the members in particular should be good, right? Right. I think we can agree to that. And in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse uh, 30, says that... um, We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So we're members of the church of God that is good, that is the body of Jesus. Now, how do we become members? Galatians 3.27 says this. Galatians 3.27. Now, I'm not going to explain all of this, uh, but we know... For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we know that through repentance, through uh, the forgiveness of sins, through baptism, through faith and obedience and uh, enduring to the end. Because it's those that endure to the end that will be saved. So we become a part of the church of God through baptism, through believing through having faith in God. And now when I say God, I'm talking about the Father and about Jesus, both of those individuals. Sometimes, you know, the scriptures might refer to one, sometimes it refers to both. But uh, in my context, I'm referring to God as both the Father and His Son, Jesus. And uh, in uh, Hebrews, the fifth chapter, and verse nine, Hebrews 5, 9, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So here's another element of the church. It is to obey and to listen to Jesus Christ and what he says. Because if he gives us commandments and he gives us direction, we are to follow that. Not follow man, not follow what we think. Not follow how some other congregations or some other churches that claim they're the church of God. As uh, we'll look at that and consider the Roman Catholic Church that has uh, continued for these uh, millennium of time. uh, And uh, has uh, confessed that they are the true church of God. So we want to be careful of that and uh, 
remember that we are to obey God. Now, that means keep his commandments, his Sabbath, his holy days. Uh, we want to shun the holidays of the world because some of the churches present those holidays as something like Sunday or New Year's or Halloween or Valentine's Day or Christmas. Some of those days that they say have religious significance and or uh, national significance. But uh, we want to obey God and shun those holidays that the, the man and uh, men's churches have set up and established. Now, we're going to leave a lot of that because we've d discussed and talked in the past about the Roman Catholicism and uh, how all of those uh, false days crept into the Church of God. Let's go back to, uh, let's see, uh, Galatians 6.10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now, there's a couple of things in here that are important that strike us, that we are to do good to all men. And the next thing is that especially we're to do good to those of the household of God. And in Ephesians, uh, the second chapter, verse 19. And what is, no, that was Ephesians, the first chapter, second chapter, verse uh, 19. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, in First uh, Timothy three fifteen, but if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God the pillar and ground of the truth. So, the church of God, the house of God, we're householders. We're members in that church. And this church is considered the house of God. Now, there's a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament that talk about the house of God, the church of God, and how that's used interchangeably. But I'm going to... Uh, leave some of those uh, verses there for us in our own private studies and our consideration because like I said there are a lot of uh, different uh, verses and a lot of different uh, scriptures that talk about the church of God and especially the membership and members and how we become a part of that church and what's expected of us. 
So uh, I want to go now to the Old Testament to a couple of uh, scriptures that we're pretty well familiar with uh, back in Isaiah, the second chapter, and uh, verse uh, 1 through uh, uh, verse 2 through 4, I guess, in Isaiah, the second chapter. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And in Micah, uh, the uh, fourth chapter, Very similar, 1 through 5. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine, and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And so I want us to uh, remember here that uh, now the church seems to be uh, very small and not influential and kind of scattered around this world, right? But our hope is, and the scriptures verify and show that in the future, God's church will be magnificent, will be the glory. Then it will be listened to. Then it will be influential and effective. Right now, it's not as uh, influential or effective. It's scattered and small. And uh, sometimes we get intimidated when we lose hope of the fact that our time is coming in the future when all the world and all the nations are going to listen to the kingdom of God, to the household of God, to the church of God, and we are then as spokesmen for God and with God, with Jesus Christ and the Father, both of those, and in our goodness and in our glory, are going to be showing the world the true way, the true happiness. Now. I want to read a few things from uh, the book 
of uh, the uh, history of the true church. This is by Duggar and Dodd. And I want to read a little bit from the uh, preface. And um, then uh, I want to read a little bit from his conclusion. I'm not going to read all this, but uh, a couple of pages. So bear with me as I read through here. And there are uh, a number of church histories uh, that you can uh, uh, check out and uh, uh, refer to. And sometimes in the encyclopedias I give some true information. But uh, I want to read this from uh, Duggar and Dodd, who are members of the Church of God. And back uh, when there was, uh, this book was written in 1936. So it was written nearly 100 years ago. But uh, he lists 22 chapters of every, every chapter is a reference of the churches of God, the assemblies of Christ, uh, individual uh, groups and churches that stood against Roman Catholicism. And it shows the development of the uh, Catholic Church down through the ages. So uh, I'm not going to go into all of that, but um, I just want to read something here from the preface. Uh, this present writing is not a work to cater to anyone, but is a history of the assemblies of God down through the ages, through over 1,200 years of papal persecutions and bloodshed, even unto the present time. It narrates from histories and ancient records the course of these certain people of God who, down through the course of time, have upheld the doctrine of the scriptures and kept the light of divine truth burning when all the world around them was in gross darkness. And achievement, learning, and advancement were hindered by the papal whore who sat upon the seven-headed, ten-horned political governments of the world and ruled with an iron hand, putting to death the millions who dared to question her authority and her power until even as John recorded in the Revelation, she was drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus and the blood of the saints of God. That's in Revelation 17, chapter. It must be conceded that a history of the true church must be a narrative of those certain people who were found upholding the truths and doctrines which were advanced by our Lord Jesus Christ and carried to all the world in the days of the apostles and disciples immediately following the ascension of Jesus. A people deviating from the scriptural examples following after the teachings of men, be they ever so sincere and be they ever so persecuted, cannot be the people who make up the assemblies known as the churches of Christ, the church of God. The Christians making up the true church will be following Jesus in every country in precept and in example. This is the reader who follows this history will understand. A true people have in all centuries, even through the dark ages, been upholding the ancient doctrine of Christ, known as the faith of Jesus, contrary to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and the belief of many uninformed persons. God has had a people separate from the organism of the apostate church, a people who through persecutions and trials have brought the Holy Bible and its precious truths down through the ages pure and unadulterated and have placed them within our reach 
and in this and in this enlightened 20th century we cannot help but praise God for such men and women as history reveals unto us who lived in the age when it was acquired the lives the lives of the faithful to the true of God we cannot be thankful enough for those who were true in the face of death and rather than deny the faith died as true martyrs of Jesus how firm we should be to dig deep and get the hidden truths long cherished by these faithful martyrs who lived and died that we might have the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ as a guide for our souls. With the above explanation of our narrative, we now present unto the reader the history of the saints of God and the martyrs of Jesus, trusting that what little we may say will be the means of leading him deeper into the truths for which the saints have died. And then there are 22 chapters, and each chapter is important. But I'm going to go to the uh, conclusion and read uh, from their conclusion. And then you can refer to the History of the Church of God by Duggar and Dodd later, if you would like. We now bring to a close the history of the true Church of the Living God. We have endeavored to trace her wanderings before the cruel hand of the oppressor, from country to country, from the holy city of Jerusalem, through Asia Minor, into the mountains and valleys of Europe, across the Atlantic, into the wilderness of the New World, America. The course these saints have followed has been marked with the lifeblood of the martyrs, who rather than deny the true gospel, suffered after the example of Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The unquestioned integrity of these true followers of the Lamb, the purity of their doctrine and their lives, the ardent love they manifested for the gospel Jesus preached, the zeal they evidenced in the face of every opposing foe as they witnessed to the truth which they inherited, the faithfulness which actuated their lives in the midst of darkness, sin, ignorance, and superstition, have thrilled our very being as we have traced their path through the centuries to our day. The fact that God has been without witness, has not been without witness, in every generation of the gospel age is evidence indeed that there is a supreme architect over all, fashioning the ages as he will, impelling men by the divine love which only heaven can give to stand firm against every device and agent of Satan. As we look back upon the faithfulness and martyrdom of those who in past ages witnessed for the faith once delivered unto the saints of God, how it should inspire us, the remnant of the children of the woman driven into the wilderness, to devoutly adore him the true God, and uphold the same pristine gospel of Christ for which saints in all generations have willingly died. The true faith has come down to us through persecutions and bloodshed. The fact that we have the scriptures for our learning and the liberty we now enjoy to worship God according to his word 
is a heritage we owe not only to God, but also to those who have died for the true faith. The history of the true church is not yet completed and will not be until the day when the gospel age closes with the coming of the Prince of Peace. Until that day, may the same God who actuated the lives of the saints of the past, who were faithful unto death, so inspire each reader to uphold aloft the true gospel amidst the trials and persecutions which shall come, and be among those faithful ones of past generations who shall have a place among the followers of the Lamb. And I'm going to conclude with that. Now, the Church of God continues, as I said, down through the ages, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Some of us are separated by distance. Some of us are separated by continents. But even though we are small and uh, are largely ignored by the world and don't have a lot of influence and power now in the world, still are a part of the true church of God. Now, Paul said that there were some who went out among us. They were among us, but they went out from us, and they were not of us. And uh, so they have gone into falsehood and into apostasy. And that, that has been the history of the church for a couple of millenniums. And there have been some churches, like uh, in Europe, uh, Peter Waldo, uh, the added his name to what's called the Waldensians. You've heard of them for several centuries. They've been scattered throughout Europe and even in several foreign countries. And uh, so sometimes men have given their name to their church. Sometimes others have put the name of that man on that church to identify them as an opposing uh, congregation. Now, uh, I want us to consider here uh, this is important, and, and I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but um, in Revelation, the 20th chapter, it talks about Satan the devil. Uh, and uh, in the future, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. After that he must be loosed a little season. And so Satan is going to be taken from the influence that he has in the world and the deceiving and the lies and the perversion and the pretending and all of that that he has accomplished down through the ages. And he's put in jail for a thousand years. And then, after the and, and verse 7, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And uh, he goes out to deceive those nations and to go up to his old tricks again of war and fighting against God and against uh, mankind and deceiving and lying, just as he has always done. And he goes to those and we've talked about this before, who have been uh, receptive to his lies and, and uh, politically uh, have been a great adherence by nations in the earth 
to Satan. So he goes back to those same people who are around the earth, who are scattered, not just in one place now, but they're scattered around the earth. And he lies and he deceives and he tries to get them to fight against God. But we have a couple of good scriptures in the Old Testament that gives us insight into uh, his fate and his destiny. And uh, in Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, verse 12 through 19. I want to just take some time to, to read these because this is important for us to who have hope of the glory of the future uh, history and destiny of the church of God to uh, see here in Ezekiel the 28th chapter and uh, let's see verse 12 through 19. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, You seal up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in you in the day that you was created. A beautiful, talented individual. We've talked about this before, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Satan himself, but he is a very talented and a very beautiful and a very uh, capable person. You are the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set you so. You was upon the holy mountain of God, you have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You was perfect in your ways from the day that you was created till iniquity was found in you. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and you have sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up, because of your beauty, you have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. I will cast you to the ground. I will lay you before kings that they may behold you. You have defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of you. It shall devour you, and I will bring you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold you. All they that know you among the people shall be astonished at you. You shall be a terror, and never shall you be any more. God is going to destroy the devil, ultimately. That is his fate and destiny. That's why he... he, he hates that. He looks forward to that time and, and he doesn't want it to happen. Nobody wants to die forever, especially the devil. And so, uh, let's go back to uh, Isaiah the 14th chapter and we'll read a few verses there. Isaiah 14 12 through 20 How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, 
How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see you shall narrowly look upon thee and consider you, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? And the king, all the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, every one in his own house. But you are cast out of the grave like an abominable branch, and as the raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with a sword, that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden underfoot. You shall not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. And there's more. But ultimately, we know this. Satan is going to be destroyed. He is going to be removed from his influence into the nations of the earth, his influence into the church of God, and his opposition to the church of God. He hates the church, and he does everything he can to destroy it. And this we can know, brethren, that ultimately he is going to fail, and God is going to succeed. Our time is coming in the future. Some of us may die. Some of us may be killed. Some of us may be persecuted. Some of us may be uh, martyred. But ultimately, the church of God will endure. Now, I have a few verses uh, in the New Testament, and then I'm going to conclude with uh, what I have today. Uh, let's go to uh, Matthew, the 19th chapter. Verse 27, Matthew 19. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed you. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that has forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And so, uh, Jesus, Jesus responded to Peter's ask and his question, uh, what shall we have? 
And Jesus said, you're going to sit with me in my glory. And that is our hope. That is the hope of everyone, Jew and Gentile, non-believer uh, uh, who repents, who believes, who accepts, who is baptized, who becomes a part of the church of God. Their hope is in the future glory when they're going to be able to share that with Jesus Christ. Now, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15th chapter, verse 42 through 44, I've uh, changed Bibles, so as you can tell, I'm a little slower. My other Bible, I've, I've marked over it, and it's coming apart, and I've had it rebound several times, and uh, scotch-taped and all of that, so I've explained all that to you before. But uh, let's go here to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse uh, 42 through 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption... It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so I haven't uh, spent uh, some time explaining the word glory and the, the Hebrew and the Greek and uh, the uh, definition of Hebrew and Greek and the glory and the splendor and the magnificence of what that uh, word in Hebrew and Greek signify. But also in the dictionary, we have uh, this word uh, glory is praise or brilliance, splendor, uh, radiant beauty. And uh, in the Old Testament, you can look in Strong's and it says it's a wide a variety of wide application, meaning the glory and the splendor and the beauty and the radiance of God. Now, we in the human flesh are not like that. But when we're in the spirit, we'll be like that, like God, for we'll see him as he is. And we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. We know that from the scriptures. And so that's our hope. So, again... We don't have much glory now, but if we remain faithful, we will share in the glory of Christ and the Father. And I have a concluding scripture in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, and um, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. But we all, with open face, beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's our hope. That's the destiny of the church of God and its future to be glorious and to be glorified. And uh, we know that that is something that we would are going to share in and look forward to in the future.